Let us pray. Father, you have founded the earth from of old, setting the mountains in place and fixing the boundaries of the seas. You put the planets in place and you call each star by name. The heavens cannot contain you, and yet, and yet you come to dwell in us by your Son and through your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we ask, show us your glory today in the reading and preaching of your gospel. May we know the joy of your forgiveness and the power of new life. Give us your gifts, O God. Fill us with your joy and peace. For we adore you, we magnify your name, we thank you for who you are and all your mighty works. We revel in your perfections, we bask in your glory. O God of our salvation, amen. Let us pray together. Father, we do give you thanks and praise, for you are our mighty fortress and our high tower. You are our defender and our shield. You are the lifter of our heads. Oh, Father, we pray, lift our heads today. Fill us with your joy. Fill us with your peace. Father, we pray that you would help us to know you and in knowing you, to know that we have eternal salvation, that eternal glory awaits us, and even now we may enter into that glory. Father, this we pray through the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Benjamin Franklin once said, the Constitution only gives people the right to pursue happiness. You have to catch it yourself. Catching happiness. Really, that's what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about. Uh, We were made to seek happiness. We can't uh, help but pursue happiness. It's how we're wired. Uh, Blaise Pascal, the great philosopher and Christian apologist, once said, all men, without exception, seek happiness. Every decision you and I make aims ultimately at our happiness. It cannot be otherwise. We all pursue happiness, but we don't all catch happiness. Everyone wants to be happy. Everyone seeks happiness, but not everyone finds it. Why is that? Why is happiness so elusive? Sometimes it's because we seek happiness in the wrong things. Uh, Sometimes, in fact, the worst thing that can happen to you is getting what you want. What if you get what you want only to find out you wanted the wrong things? This happens to people all the time. C.S. Lewis said human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God to make him happy. And indeed it is. Uh, Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon shows us why things can't satisfy us, why only God can satisfy us. Things can't satisfy us. Why? Because they are, as Solomon says, vanity or vapor. That's actually how the book of Ecclesiastes opens. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Or better translated, vapor, vapor, all is vapor. This is Solomon's constant refrain in the book of Ecclesiastes as he's imparting his wisdom. This is what he says again and again. Human life and everything in it is vapor. Life is vaporous because it's fleeting. It's temporary. And life is vaporous because it's beyond our control. As Solomon says, you can't shepherd 
the wind. You can't sculpt the vapor. You can't harness it. You can't get any leverage over it. Think about trying to grasp hold of fog. On a foggy day, you can reach into it, but you don't grasp anything. You can't control the fog or the vapor. And so Solomon says, we cannot master or control life. We cannot understand it or predict it. Life is full of mystery. Indeed, when we try to grasp life, to take hold of it, to steer it, it slips through our fingers. You can't grasp the vapor. You can no more handle fog than you can control your own life. We just don't have that kind of power, that kind of control. And so if you seek happiness in something vaporous, it's never going to satisfy you because it doesn't last. It's not solid, so it can't fill you up. You can't hang on to it. You can't grasp it. Not only that, but vapor is fleeting. The shadow of death hangs over everything. Death threatens happiness. We're looking at this passage in Ecclesiastes 9 this morning. In Ecclesiastes 9, that part that we read, verses 9, uh, verses 7 through 10, right before that passage and right after that passage in Ecclesiastes 9, Solomon alludes to death. And he talks about the inescapability of death. In verse 2 of chapter 9, he says, one event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the clean and to the unclean, to the one who sacrifices and the one who doesn't. What is this one event that happens to all? Well, verse 3 tells us what this one thing that happens to all is. They go to the dead. They all die. It doesn't matter how advanced our medical technology gets. The mortality rate remains 100%. It doesn't matter how healthy you try to be. You're still going to die. It doesn't matter how good you are. The same fate will overtake you in the end that overtakes the wicked. You will die. The same end comes upon the wicked and the righteous. That's what Solomon says. Death sweeps us all away in the end. And there's no fighting this. There's no resisting this. No matter how fancy your clothes, no matter how big your house, no matter how fat your wallet, all our graves are the same size. Death is the great equalizer. And death comes upon us all. It is the great certainty. Sand is running through the hourglass of life for each of us. And so how happy can you really be when death beckons, when death is coming? How can you pursue happiness when death is pursuing you? How can you catch happiness when you know death is going to catch you sooner or later? Death's going to catch up to you and take you. And yet this is exactly what Solomon commands. He commands joy in the face of this vaporous existence where we can't grab hold of anything or control life. In the face of this vaporous existence that is fleeting where death is going to take us all, Solomon commands joy. Verse 7 of chapter 9, he says, Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already accepted your works. Solomon is the preacher in Ecclesiastes, and he is a preacher of joy. His message is one of joy. Ecclesiastes is, yes, it's a a book of wisdom, but it's also a book of joy. Again and again, Solomon commands joy. In fact, seven times in this book, he very specifically commands joy. In chapter 2, he says, Nothing is better than for a man that he should eat and drink 
and his soul should enjoy good in his labor. Chapter 3, I know nothing is better than for a man to rejoice and do good in his life. Chapter 5, it is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of his labor. Chapter 7, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Chapter 8, I commanded enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be merry. Chapter 11, rejoice, young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Again and again, Solomon calls on us to be joyful. There's nothing better than joy. He commands us to experience joy, to enjoy life, to enjoy God's gifts. Solomon knows we are embodied creatures and our bodies were designed to inhabit, yes, but also to enjoy this physical world that God made, the physical pleasures of marriage and of feasting are good. And so Solomon says again and again, enjoy them, enjoy them to the fullest, enjoy life, enjoy what God gives. Why does Solomon command joy so constantly? Aren't we all joy seekers anyway? Why command something that everyone is already doing? We don't have to be told to pursue happiness. We're already pursuing happiness. Well, Solomon does more than just command joy. He commands seeking joy in a particular way, finding joy in a particular way. He shows us how to catch happiness, the happiness that otherwise is so elusive. We've already seen that Solomon is a realist, but think about this a little bit more. Solomon is a realist about our limitations, about all that we lack, the power that we lack. He's a realist about our inability to control things. Again, vapor, vapor, all is vapor. All of life is vaporous. We can't control it. We can't grab hold of it. He's also a realist about death. It's the one event that happens to all. Again, as we saw, there's no escaping it. Our lives are like a morning mist. We're here one day and gone the next. And that's just how it is. But even with his heavy doses of realism, he calls on us to rejoice. To not just seek joy, but to find it. To capture joy. Not just to pursue happiness, but to catch it. How do we catch happiness? See, Solomon's not asking us to ignore the pain and just party like there's nothing wrong with the world. Solomon is well aware of The fact that the world is twisted and bent and broken. He says that again and again. The world is twisted. And what has been twisted, man cannot make straight. So clearly this is not a joy that denies the vapor. Rather, it's a joy in the midst of vapor. It's not a joy that comes from pretending. From pretending that the world has been straightened out. No, it's a joy in the midst of the twistedness. It's a joy we find in the midst of the world's twistedness. But then that's still the question. How can we find joy when we know all is vapor? How can we find lasting joy in a broken world? How can we find lasting joy in a fleeting world? You know, here we are on this tiny blue spinning dot that's hurling through cold and empty space. How can we find the purpose of or the meaning, or the significance that are necessary to finding joy. 
Where in the universe can we find this kind of joy Solomon is commanding? How do we obey Solomon's command? Well, I think Solomon has not left us clueless in this. I think he's given us several clues, several hints, so we can find the joy he's talking about. First, in this very passage in Ecclesiastes 9, he shows us joy comes from knowing that God has accepted us and therefore accepts our works. So verse 7, Solomon says, Go and eat and drink with a cheerful heart. And then this is what he gives us his reason. This is why you can go be cheerful as you eat and drink. This is, this, this is his reason. He says, For God has already approved of your works. You will not find joy unless you understand the judgment of God. God's judgment and our joy go together. We need to know that God has judged in our favor. We find joy in God's judgment, in God's verdict, the verdict He has passed over us. That is to say, we find our joy in God's joy in us. What is Solomon saying? He's saying God delights in us. He delights in our works. And so we can delight in Him and His work. Solomon is saying God is pleased with His people. He's pleased with our works. He's pleased with our good works. No, our good works are not perfect. Even the best thing you've ever done was still tainted and stained by sin in some way. But God was still pleased with it. If we can put this in New Covenant terms, we could describe it this way. God has approved of our persons in Christ Jesus, and He now accepts our works because they are the work of the Spirit in us. The works that we do are the fruit of the Spirit. So when God approves our works, He's really approving of His Spirit's work in us. And all throughout the New Testament, we find a great deal about pleasing God. It's the same theme that you see right here in Ecclesiastes. We really do please God if we are faithful. We're His faithful people if we're trusting in Him. We really do please God. He really is pleased with our works. C.S. Lewis put it this way. said, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or as a father in his son. It seems impossible. A weight of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Maybe really hard for you to believe that God is pleased with you. But you need to believe it because the Bible says it. God has spoken it to us. We need to feel the warmth of God's smile over our lives. God's smiling countenance over us. That God lifts up His countenance over us. Feel God's approval. Feel God's joy and God's delight in you. Knowing your sins have been forgiven through the sacrifice of Christ and knowing your works are accepted because the good works you do are the works of the Spirit in you. And just as the Father accepts the Son's work for you, so the Father accepts the Spirit's work in you. That's really, that's not all packed in. You know, Solomon couldn't have explained all of that in just the way I have. Uh, He awaited the fullness of revelation. But now we have it. We can see how this works, how God can approve of us. And God's approval brings joy. God's joy in us brings us joy. 
Because God rejoices in us, we can rejoice in God. That's what knowing the judgment of God does for you. And this joy is especially experienced at the table. Solomon says, with bread and wine. It's really, really interesting. The word here for approve, when it speaks of God approving our works, is the same word that's used in Leviticus for God approving or accepting the offerings and the offerer. The offerings that are made and the one who offers them are approved or accepted by God. This is temple language. This is liturgical language. This eating and drinking especially has to do with worship. In fact, this language of eating and drinking and rejoicing, this is also language you found, you will find in the Torah, in the law for Israel's worship. It's language that's used to describe what Israel does during her worship feast. It's what happens when Israel gathers at the sanctuary. Think of a passage like Deuteronomy 14 where Moses is preaching to the people about the great festivals they will have in the land when they settle down, when they go to the place where God chooses to have his house. And Moses commands Israel to feast before the Lord on whatever their hearts desire. He commands whole households to rejoice before the Lord at the sanctuary, eating and drinking together, feasting and partying together. That's commanded in the Torah, in the law. And that's what Solomon is looking at. Solomon, of course, built the temple. And so it makes sense he would focus on the temple as the center of Israel's life and the heart of Israel's joy. You want to find joy? Go to the temple. Go to worship. See, this is how we find joy. If life is vapor, how do we find joy? By worshiping the living God. By gathering with His people in His presence. God gives us bread and wine as signs of His favor, as proof of His joy in us. That was true of Israel's feasts. That's what Israel's feasts were all about. But for us today, it's what the Lord's Supper is all about. Every time we take the Lord's Supper... We're called upon to rejoice in the midst of this vaporous life. We're called to rejoice in God's judgment over us that God has judged in our favor. And how do we know the bread and the wine are the proof? And so when Solomon says, eat and drink and make merry, that's not the language of a lawless, reckless hedonism. It's really the language of a liturgical hedonism. It's the language of the liturgy. It's the language of the joy we find in God's presence, knowing He accepts us and our works, knowing He accepts our sacrifices through the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. And flowing out of the festivity of the liturgy, especially the Lord's table, we can experience joy in all kinds of other ways because we know God has accepted us and we know God approves of our works. But it starts here. As we gather together, as we gather around this table, this is where festivity begins. This is where we learn the serious business of joy. Rejoicing in God's presence. This is where we come to know God has approved of us. And so this is where we begin to learn joy. Gathering with God's people in God's presence. Eating the bread and drinking the wine together spills over to our tables or other festivities or other parties and gatherings. But this is where it starts here. This is where we learn joy. But there's something else. The fact that Solomon commands joy tells us something else. 
Yes, life is vaporous. It's beyond our control. You cannot determine or dictate the circumstances of your life. And sometimes, because of this reality, we are tempted to think of ourselves as victims. As victims of the vapor. As if life were out to get us. As if there are all these forces swirling around us. These vaporous forces. And they're all arrayed against us. And there's nothing we can do about them. We are helpless in the face of it all. And so we are victims. If you think of yourself as life's victim you will always be miserable. Because victimhood fosters feelings of helplessness. And if you go around thinking of yourself as a victim, a victim of the vapor, there's no way you will ever find this joy Solomon's talking about. No, you cannot control your life or your circumstances, but that does not leave you as a passive, helpless victim. Indeed, Solomon tells you what to do. He charts a course of action for you, which means you have agency. You have a responsibility. He tells you what to do if you want to find joy. He prescribes this course of action. No, you can't control life's circumstances, but you can control your response to them. And therein lies your joy. You can even control your emotional response to your circumstances. So interesting how we see this again and again in Scripture. There's a very real sense in which just as we are responsible for our actions, we are responsible for our feelings, for our emotions. Sometimes we say, oh, but I can't help but feel this way. And it is true that emotions will come over us that we can't control. Something bad happens, you feel grief. Something good happens, you feel joy. It doesn't feel like you chose those emotions. But there's still a very real sense in which we can shape our emotions. Just one example of this in Scripture. David, in Psalm 42, David begins to talk back to his emotions. He reasons with his own emotions. He says, oh, my soul, why are you cast down within me? He doesn't just listen to his emotions. He questions his emotions. He talks to his emotions. He's talking to his own soul. There's a kind of self-talk here, an inner monologue. There's an inner dialogue. I'm not really sure. He's talking to himself. He's preaching truth to himself, calling upon himself to hope in God. Why, oh my soul, are you cast down within me? That's the question he asks his despondent emotions. And then he exhorts himself, hope in God. And you see, if you look at Psalm 42, that kind of self-talk moves him towards joy as he preaches the gospel to himself in this inner conversation. He begins to channel his thoughts and his emotions away from despondency and into hope. Away from that kind of despair and into joy. So you've got a choice to make. This is what Solomon is saying. You have a choice to make. And Solomon says, choose joy. Whether in times of prosperity or adversity, you can find pleasure and delight in God and His gifts. Preach joy to yourself. Remind yourself. Preach to yourself those reasons to rejoice. See, if life is unpredictable and if death is unavoidable, what does Solomon want us to do? He wants us to rejoice. And he wants us to rejoice right now. He wants us to rejoice in spite of it all. He wants us to seize the moment 
He wants us to seize the day. Carpe diem, right? That, that's, that's the Latin. Carpe diem. This is the biblical version of carpe diem. Seize the day. Make the most of what God gives you. Make the most of your circumstances and your opportunities. Make the most of life. God has given you all these opportunities. He's given you this particular set of circumstances. And within the midst of it all, within the vaporous nature of your life, you can choose joy. You can remind yourself of all the reasons you have for rejoicing. Right after saying we're all going to die, he says, go rejoice. That, If you look at the flow in, at the beginning of Ecclesiastes 9, that's how it works. He says, we're all going to die. The same event, death is going to overtake us all. So what should you do? Go. Go rejoice. Go eat and drink and make merry. That word go gives his command a kind of urgency. His command to rejoice has a kind of urgency. You better do it now, he's saying. So if he's saying there's no time to waste, you need to get busy rejoicing right now. Enjoy life while you can. This is your wake-up call, Solomon is saying. Throw a party. Get together with your friends. Enjoy your wife. Know that you're eating and you're drinking and you're working and you're loving and you're worshiping. These are all gifts of God. And rejoice in every single one of them. Some think Solomon prescribes this urgency because he had no knowledge of the resurrection. And so he's really giving a a kind of you only live once kind of philosophy. But I don't think that's true. Certainly if you look at the beginning of Ecclesiastes 9, it does look kind of bleak. In fact, other places in Ecclesiastes do as well. Solomon seems to not want to say a whole lot about life after death and certainly not about the resurrection. But I don't think Solomon is being cynical. I do think he had an awareness of resurrection hope like the other biblical writers did. I think he knows a new creation is coming. And I think that's why he says in other places, God will make the works of our hands to stand. God will establish the works of our hands. So in some way, the things that we do in this life will last forever. He knows that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And he knows that this broken, twisted world will ultimately be straightened out and made right by God. I think all of that's hinted at in other ways in Ecclesiastes. But I think he fully recognizes that what we do in this life has eternal implications. There are eternal ramifications to what we do in this life. And so this is what he's getting at. There are some things that must be done now or they won't ever get done. There are some things that must be done in this life or they cannot happen. And so Solomon says, seize the day. You don't know how much time you have. And whatever time you have, it's probably not enough. It's probably not as much as you would like. So live one day at a time, yes, but make the most of each day. Or again, to put this in new covenant terms, redeem the time. That's how Ephesians 5 puts it, redeem the time. What is redeemed time? It's time lived to the glory of God. It's recognizing that all time is quality time for God. We're always on the clock. We're always on God's clock. All our time belongs to God. And yes, we need to, as Solomon does in in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, recognize there are different qualities of time, different kinds of time. There's work time and play time. There's sleep time and worship time. 
Hopefully not the same, okay? Uh, there's uh, family time and free time. There's dinner time and nap time. There's celebration time and grieving time. Time is not just the ticking of the clock. We tend to think of time in this kind of mechanical way. It's just, it's the seconds going by on the stopwatch or it's the ticking of the clock. Now, that time, it's what we do with our time that matters, that gives time its particular Qualities. Some of us think of life kind of like a football game. You know, a football game is it's 60 minutes on the clock, but actually there's only about 10 or 11 minutes of real action in any football game. Okay? That's why some of you hate football, okay? Uh, but it's, that's just how it is. In a football game, there's only about 10 or 11 minutes of real action that takes place. And some of us think of life as that way. You know, I've got this many years, but there's only really this tiny little part of it that counts. Only these few little events that really matter. That's not the case at all. Every moment matters. Right now matters for eternity. That's really what Solomon goes on to say in chapter 9, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Death awaits. What he goes on to say in chapter 9, verse 12. A man knows not his time. You don't know when death will take you. So what do you do in the meantime? Live with all your might. Make every moment count. Live intentionally. Live with purpose. Figure out what God's particular mission for you is and then go do it. And put your whole heart into it. Carpe diem, right? Seize the day. Whatever calling, whatever work God has for you, whatever kind of family life God gives to you, whatever kind of neighborhood you live in, whatever whatever kind of wider community you're a part of, whatever kind of gifts and abilities you have, live with all your might. Use it all for the glory of God. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, we can, uh, we can, we can put it this way, sticking with the Latin, we can put it this way. Carpe diem corum deo may be the best way to summarize what Solomon is getting at here. Carpe diem corum deo. Seize the day before the face of God. Seize the day because you live all of life before the face of God. That really summarizes and crystallizes Solomon's message here. Don't just let life happen to you. Live it. Now see, some of us try hard to control our lives. We try to take control of the vapor and we want to try to steer the vapor. And we need to be reminded, no, you can't do that. Life is vaporous. And so you're just going to have to trust God. You're not in control God is. In fact, you need to learn to thank God that you're not the one in control, that he's in control. Some of us, you know, we're kind of control freaks and that's our tendency. We want to control things. We need to realize we can't. But there are others of us who've got the opposite problem. We're far too passive about life. We say, no, I can't control my life. In fact, I don't really seem to be able to change much of anything about my life. And if that's you, you need to be reminded you can change more about your life than you think. Too often we find ourselves complaining about life's problems instead of doing what we can to solve them. And yes, it is true, there are some problems that can't be solved in this life. Ecclesiastes shows us there's some things that you just can't fix in this world. There are some wounds that just aren't going to be healed in this life. Full healing has to await the resurrection. There are some problems you just can't solve in this life. But many can be if we will only get to work and make it happen, if we will be intentional and purposeful. I saw a t-shirt, I, I talked about carpe diem, I saw a t-shirt not too long ago that said carpe manana. 
seize tomorrow, keep putting it off. No, that's not Solomon's message. He says, go right now. Go grab hold of joy right now, today. Do what you can do to serve God faithfully, to make your life and the world a better place. If your marriage is unhappy, don't just complain about it. Even if your spouse is, you find, impossible to deal with, certainly there are still things you can do to improve your marriage. If your kids are driving you crazy, yeah, there may be some things there that you just can't fix or correct. But there are certainly some things you can do. There are certainly some steps you can take to make things better. Don't just complain about your kids. Do something to make family life more bearable, more enjoyable for everyone. Is your work situation miserable? Is your work situation a drag? Don't complain about it. Find a solution. Find a way forward. Don't be passive. Act. Step out and do something about it. Go, Solomon says. Go make it better. Go find joy. You've got a duty to God and to your neighbor to be as happy as possible. To live the happiest life you possibly can. You've got a duty to God and to your neighbor to pursue joy. Because let's face it, miserable, unhappy, joyless people are hard for all of us to be around. You don't want to be that kind of person. You don't want to inflict that kind of misery on others. You've got a duty to go be Joyful, not just for your own good, but for the good of others. Not just for your own happiness, but for the happiness of others as well. Because really, we're kind of all tied together in this. You can't find happiness on your own just as an individual. It's a communal, social, cultural thing as well. Solomon says, go eat and drink. Go marry and work. Go worship and have kids and play and take a vacation. Go build a life, Solomon says. A life of joy. And yes, the vapor's swirling all around and no, you can't control it. But go anyway. Go do what you can. Go build a life as best you can in the midst of the vapor. A life of joy. Seize the moment. You might say, but Solomon, how can I do this? Life is vapor. My plans might fail. Something bad might happen. I'm not in control. Solomon would say, Go. Go do it. Go do your work with joy. Go make the best of your vaporous life. Trust God and get to work. Live your vaporous life to the fullest. Live your vain, vaporous life as best you can. Live in the midst of the vapor with all your might. That's what Solomon would say to us. Don't just pursue happiness. Catch it. Go and rejoice. For Solomon, there is one special key to joy. And I think this is what makes happiness truly possible in a vaporous world. And it's important to understand it has nothing to do with circumstances. In fact, it's interesting. There are uh, apparently happiness researchers. I don't know how reliable this kind of thing is, but people who research happiness, they found that happiness actually has very little to do with circumstances, very little to do with how much money you make, for example has very little to do with whether somebody is happy or not. Happiness has to do much more with your outlook on life, your worldview, the kind of choices that you make. In other words, your happiness is largely your own responsibility and it's largely something you can determine. Think about Philippians 4.13. I preached on that passage earlier this year. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
And in context, what does it mean to do all things? It means, Paul is saying, I can be content or I can be happy in any circumstance. Whether I've got a lot or a little, I can be content, I can be happy through Christ who strengthens me. Remember I told you that verse doesn't so much belong on cleats, you know, for athletes or on coffee mugs. It belongs on prison cell walls where Christians are being held captive, being persecuted for their faith. That's where you really learn, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be happy in a prison cell. That's where Paul was when he wrote those words, in a prison cell. That, that verse belongs in hospital rooms where Christians are dying of cancer. I can be content. Even with cancer, I can be happy in any circumstance because I know even as difficult as it is and as much grief and pain as it brings me, I know that God has a loving purpose in it. It is astounding how many Bible passages call on us to rejoice even in the midst of pain and trial. Think about James 1. Count your trials joy, my brothers. Or Romans chapter 5, where Paul says, rejoice even in tribulation. Rejoice in your sufferings. He even talks about boasting in your tribulations. Elizabeth Elliot once said, the secret to joy is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in Philippians 4.13. Anytime someone bases happiness on circumstances, happiness will always elude them. Anytime you base happiness on getting what you want, as soon as you get it, you're just going to want more. It will not make you happy. You have a wish list. Your wishes are granted. What do you do? You're not happy. You just wish for more. You just create a new list. That's how things go if we're chasing happiness in that way. So happiness is not based on circumstances, not in this vaporous world where circumstances are swirling around us all the time, constantly changing, and there's nothing stable there. No, happiness happens when you give God thanks. That's what Solomon with the whole rest of Scripture shows us. Happiness happens when you give God thanks. Thanksgiving will unleash the flow of joy in your life. When you see that all you have is God's gift, and then you say thank you, joy will follow. When you remember that God owes you nothing and you owe Him everything, Ecclesiastes shows us this again and again. Ecclesiastes emphasizes all we have is a gift. So in Ecclesiastes 2, he says, nothing is better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in your work. This is God's gift. Not just the food and the drink and the work, but the ability to enjoy it is God's gift as well. Or Ecclesiastes 3 says the same thing. Wealth and the ability, or I think it's actually Ecclesiastes 5, wealth and the ability to enjoy it is God's gift. What kills our joy, especially in our culture today, what kills our joy more than anything else is a spirit of entitlement. A sense of entitlement is poison to your soul. A sense of entitlement where you're focused on what you're owed, what society owes you, what other people owe you, what God owes you. That sense of entitlement sabotages joy. If you want to be joyful, you must be thankful. If you want to be happy, you must give thanks. Giving God thanks breaks through the vapor. Giving God thanks opens the floodgates of joy. 
know, everybody's given various gifts by God, Christians, non-Christians, everybody's given various gifts by God. But not everybody can really enjoy those gifts. Imagine having a cellar full of all the best wines from all over the world, all perfectly aged. You've got a wine cellar with all the best wines. But what if you had no corkscrew? All those bottles of wine would do you no good. You would not be able to enjoy them. What's a good bottle of wine without a corkscrew? You need a corkscrew. What is the corkscrew? Give God thanks and the corks will pop and the wine will flow and you will enjoy all that God has given you. Giving God thanks unleashes the joy. God gives thankful people the power to enjoy His gifts. Without, sat, without gratitude, satisfaction will always be just beyond your reach. You'll be able to see it, but not grasp it. But as soon as you say thank you to God, you'll get it. You'll grab hold of it. You'll have that joy. See, your joy is largely up to you. And it's largely a matter of whether or not you are willing to give thanks. Regret cannot change your past. Worry cannot alter your future. But giving thanks can completely transform your present and fill it with joy. Joy is never far away. It's always within reach for those who will give God Thanks. God has created a zillion different kinds of pleasures, a zillion different kinds of joys for us to experience, with, of course, the ultimate joy being God Himself. He wants us to have this joy. What's the gateway to this joy? It's giving God thanks. To the thankful, life is good. To the thankful, today is the best day ever, and tomorrow is going to be even better. To the thankful, even trials can be counted as joys. Life has its ups and downs for all of us. We're all going to go through good times and bad times. Life has its ups and downs. Give thanks for both every day. If life is going to be a roller coaster, why not just throw your hands up and enjoy the ride? And the way to do that is by telling God, thank you. When G.K. Chesterton was on his journey into the Christian faith, he said he came to realize that God was a God of order and God had established a rule and an order in the universe. But he says, I discovered that the aim of this order was to give room for good things to run wild. When you give God thanks, when you live by His order, giving Him thanks, good things run wild in your life. You know, non-Christians think they've got to choose between God and happiness or between Christ and happiness. And so, of course, what do they choose every time? They choose happiness and leave God behind. Because they think that if they were to really trust and obey God, then they would be miserable because God is surely a cosmic killjoy and surely God is determined to make sure that nobody has too much fun. Quite honestly, that's always been Satan's marketing strategy to say you'll be happy by leaving God behind. Satan's a lot better at marketing than the church is. But we need to change that. The best way we can quote-unquote market the truth is through our joy. 
One of the medieval monks said, serve the Lord with laughter. There's nothing more spiritual than laughter. Nothing more spiritual than joy. Nothing more spiritual than enjoying God's good gifts of food and marriage and wine. Joy is our best advertising strategy for the gospel. Our joy is the best evangelistic strategy there is because joy preaches. Joy does what a sermon cannot. Joy is powerful. And when the world sees our joy, it points them past the gifts to the giver, to the giver of every good gift. Non-Christians can taste happiness, but never in the way Christians can. The world will not let them enjoy God because it hates God, and God won't let them enjoy the world because they won't thank Him. And so they're stuck. They miss out on God, and really they miss out on the world too. We need to show the world a better way of being human. As we give God thanks, we find we can enjoy both God and the world. We get God and His gifts thrown in at no extra charge. If you try to enjoy the world without God, it slips through your fingers. But if you seek to enjoy God, you get the world thrown in at no extra charge. This is our calling. If you want joy, you have to be close to the one who has joy, who is joy in himself. You have to be close to God himself. You want to be happy? Pursue God because God is happiness. In pursuing happiness, pursue God. And when you catch him, you will find you have happiness. Let's pray together. God, we know that you made us to be happy, to enter into your eternal joy. God, you are joy. You are full of joy. There is joy in knowing you and in loving you. Give us this joy. Oh, God, we thank you for the gifts you give us, gifts you give to us in the midst of this vaporous life, gifts that bring us joy as we give you thanks for them. And so, yes, God, we do thank you. And as we thank you, we ask you to give us the power to enjoy what you have given. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As God's royal priesthood, let us stand together for prayer. Holy and almighty God, you made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. You are steadfast, keeping your faith forever. You execute justice for the oppressed. You set the prisoners free. You open the eyes of the blind. You lift up those who are bowed down. The Lord our God loves the righteous. You take pleasure in those who fear you. Yes, Lord, you sing over your people with exultation, with joy and delight. Praise the Lord, our great and holy and majestic God. We pray that today you would purge us from all evil thoughts and desires. Deliver us from every sinful habit. When confronted with former sins and tempted to do the same, cause our eyes to gaze upon the cross of Christ and our heart to find greater satisfaction and joy in our risen Lord. Help us flee from everything dims the brightness of your grace in our lives. Fill us with your spirit. Conform us to look more like Jesus in every decision, every trial, every joy, every sorrow. Sanctify us for the glory of your holy name. We thank you for the gift of our faith. We ask that you continue to mature and strengthen that faith, that we would be made more like Christ. We pray that you would be among us today, strengthening the weary, healing the sick, 
encouraging us all. Thank you for being a God who pursues his people, does not leave us, rather you seek after us. We rejoice that Jesus makes constant intercession on our behalf. And we pray that we would always and forever give you thanks for your mercy. And we confess that in our weakness we are weak and selfish. But which you know, we know in our confidence that you have saved us by grace. And in your strength we are free. We lift up our hearts to you today and our hands are outstretched. Thank you for meeting us here in your house. We cannot count the many ways which you bless us. We are eternally grateful for all that you do in our lives. We give you praise and thanks and help us to come away from this place today under the light of your countenance and the satisfaction of your perfect love for us. And build this church that we might display your manifold wisdom. Would joy and delight in Christ mark us? Would we be a people that are zealous to make and mature disciples? Father, we pray for our government. We pray, praise you for the many freedoms that we enjoy and the multiplied privileges that go with living in this nation. May we use that freedom to pray boldly for our government officials that you would guide them. And more especially today, Lord, we pray for the, our local Birmingham governments, for our mayors, for our city councilmen, for our police and our firefighters and others who protect us and educate us. We pray for the churches in Birmingham and our neighborhood, especially for St. Stephen's, for Cahaba Heights Baptist, and for Philadelphia Baptist. We pray that for those that are in prison, that you would be reforming them and helping them to seek repentance for those evils that they have done. We pray for those that are sick, for those doctors who care for the sick. We pray for economic development in our area, that you would help us to thrive. We pray for Theopolis Institute and the upcoming ethics lectures on Saturday. Lord, we pray for mercy for all those who travel. We pray especially for David and Stephanie Woods as they move to Colorado this weekend, for those going to Summer Sanctus, for campers and staff, for wisdom for our officers here, those who comfort the more in the loss of a loved one recently, especially for Kathleen Duquette, for Jennifer Stevenson, and for Ashton Motes. We pray for any of us who are sick or afflicted and for those who care for them and for those who we name in our hearts before you now. And now, Lord, we pray, we summarize all these prayers in the prayer that your Son and our Savior taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.